Chapter 44 The Chart Had you followed Captain Ahab down into his cabin, after the squall that took place on the night succeeding that wild ratification of his purpose with his crew, you would have seen him go to a locker in the transom and bring out a large wrinkled roll of yellowish sea charts, spreading them before him on a screwed-down table. Then, seating himself before it, you would have seen him intently study the various lines and shadings which there met his eye, and with slow but steady pencil trace additional courses over spaces that before were blank. At intervals, he would refer to piles of old log books beside him, wherein were set down the seasons and places in which, on various former voyages of various ships, sperm whales had been captured or seen. Thus while employed, the heavy pewter lamp suspended in chains over his head continually rocked with the motion of the ship, and forever threw shifting gleams and shadows of lines upon his wrinkled brow, till it almost seemed that while he himself was marking out lines and courses on the wrinkled charts, some invisible pencil was also tracing lines and courses upon the deeply marked chart of his forehead. But it was not this night in particular that, in the solitude of his cabin, Ahab thus pondered over his charts. Almost every night they were brought out, almost every night some pencil marks were effaced, and others were substituted. For with the charts of all four oceans before him, Ahab was threading a maze of currents and eddies, with a view to the more certain accomplishments of that monomaniac thought of his soul. Now, to anyone not fully acquainted with the ways of the Leviathans, it might seem an absurd, hopeless task thus to seek out one solitary creature in the unhooped oceans of this planet. But not so did it seem to Ahab, who knew the sets of all tides and currents, and thereby calculating the drifting of the sperm whale's food, and, also, calling to mind the regular, ascertained seasons for hunting in particular latitudes, could arrive at reasonable surmises almost approaching certainties concerning the timeliest day to be upon this or that ground in which to search of his prey. So assured, indeed, is the fact concerning the periodicalness of the sperm whale's resorting to given waters that many hunters believe that, could he be closely observed and studied throughout the world, were the logs for one voyage of the entire whale fleet carefully collated, then the migrations of the sperm whale would be found to correspond in invariability to those of the herring shoals or the flights of swallows. On this hint, Attempts have been made to construct elaborate migratory charts of the sperm whale. Since the above was written, the statement is happily borne out by the official circular, issued by Lieutenant Murray of the National Observatory, Washington, April 16, 1851. By this circular, it appears that precisely such a chart is in course of completion, and portions of it are presented in the circular. This chart divides the ocean into districts of 5 degrees latitude by 5 degrees longitude, perpendicularly through each which districts are 12 columns for 12 months, and horizontally through each of these districts are 3 lines, one to show the number of days that have been spent in each month and in every district, and two others to show the number of days in which whales, sperm, or right have been seen. Besides, when making a passage from one feeding ground to another, the sperm whales, guided by some infallible indistinct, say, rather, secret intelligence from the deity, mostly swim in veins, as they are called, continuing their way along a given ocean line with such undeviating exactitude that no ship ever sailed her course by any chart with one tithe of the marvelous precision. Though, in these cases, the direction taken by any one whale be straight as a surveyor's parallel, 
and though the lines of advance be strict confined to its own unavoidable straight wake, yet the arbitrary vein in which at these times he is said to swim generally embraces some few miles in width, more or less as the vein is presumed to expand or contract, but never exceeds the visual sweep from the whale ship's mastheads, when circumspectly gliding along the magic zone. The sum is that at particular seasons within that breath and along that path, migrating whales may with great confidence be looked for, and hence not only at substantial times upon well-known separate feeding grounds could Ahab hope to encounter his prey, but in crossing the widest expanses of water between these grounds he could, by his art, so place and time himself in his way as even then not to be wholly without prospect of a meeting." There was a circumstance which at first sight seemed to entangle his delirious but still methodical scheme, but not so in reality, perhaps. Though the gregarious sperm whale have their regular seasons for particular grounds, yet in general you cannot conclude that the herds which hunted such and such a latitude or longitude this year, say, will turn out to be identically the same with those that were found there the preceding season, though there are peculiar and unquestionable instances where the contrary has proven true. In general, the same remark, only within a less wide limit, applies to the solitaries and hermits along the matured, aged sperm whale, so that though Moby Dick had in his former years been seen, for example, on what is called the Seychelle Ground in the Indian Ocean, or Volcano Bay on the Japanese coast, yet it did not follow that were the Pequod to visit either of those spots at any subsequent corresponding season, she would infallibly encounter him there. So, too, with some other feeding grounds where he had times revealed himself. But all these seemed only his casual stopping places and ocean inns, so to speak, not his places of prolonged abode. And where Ahab's chances of accomplishing his object have hitherto been spoken of, allusion has only been made to whatever wayside, antecedent extra prospects were his, ere a particular set time or place were attained, when all possibilities would become probabilities, and, as Ahab fondly thought, every possibility the next thing to a certainty. That particular set of time and place were conjoined in the one technical phrase, the season on the line. For there and then, for several consecutive years, Moby Dick has been periodically decried, lingering in those waters for a while, as the sun in its annual round loiters for the predicted intervals in any one sign of the zodiac. There it was, too, that most of the deadly encounters with the white whale had taken place. There the waves were storied with his deeds. There also was that tragic spot where the monomaniac old man had found the awful motive to his vengeance. But in the cautious comprehensiveness and unloitering vengeance with which Ahab threw his brooding soul into the unfaltering hunt, he would not permit himself to rest all his hope upon one crowning fact above mentioned, however flattering it might be to those hopes, nor in the sleeplessness of his vow could he so tranquilize his unquiet heart as to postpone all intervening quest. Now, the Pequod had sailed from Nantucket at the very beginning of the season on the line, no possible endeavor could then enable her commander to make the great passage southwards, double Cape Horn, and then running down 60 degrees of latitude arrive at the equatorial Pacific in time to cruise there. Therefore, he must wait for the next ensuing season. Yet the premature hour of the Pequod sailing had, perhaps, been correctly selected by Ahab, with a view to this very complexion of things because an interval of 365 days and nights was before him, an interval which, instead of impatiently enduring ashore, he would spend a miscellaneous hunt, 
if by chance the white whale spending his vacation in seas, far remote from his periodical feeding grounds, should turn up his wrinkled brow off the Persian Gulf, or the Bengal Bay, or China Seas, or in any other waters hunted by his race, so that monsoons, pompous, nor'westers, harmattans, trades, or any wind but the Levanter and the Simoom might blow Moby Dick into the devious zigzag world circled of the Pequod circumnavigating wake. But granting all this, yet, regarded discreetly and coolly, seems it not but a mad idea, this, that in the broad, boundless ocean, one solitary whale, even if encountered, should be thought capable of individual recognition from his hunter, even as a white-bearded mufti in the thronged thoroughfares of Constantinople. Yes, for the particular snow-white brow of Moby Dick and his snow-white hump could not be unmistakable, and I have not tallied the whale, Ahab would mutter to himself, as after poring over his charts till long after midnight, he would throw himself back in reveries, tallied him, and shall he escape? His broad fins are bored and scalloped, out like a lost sheep's ear, and here his mad mind would run on the breathless race, till a weariness and faintness of pondering came over him, and in the open air of the deck he would seek to recover his strength. Ah, God! What trances of torments does that man endure who is consumed with one unachieved, revengeful desire? He sleeps with clenched hands and wakes with his own bloody nails in his palms. Often, when forced from his hammock by exhausting and intolerably vivid dreams of the night, which, resuming his own intense thoughts through the day, carried them on amid a clashing of pharynces and whirled them round and round in his blazing brain till the very throbbing of his life-spot became insufferable anguish. And when, as was sometimes the case, these spiritual throes in him heaved his being up from its base, and a chasm seemed opening in him, from which forked flames and lightnings shot up, and accursed fiends beckoned him to leap down among them, when this hell in himself yawned beneath him, a wild cry would be heard through the ship, and with glaring eyes Ahab would burst from his stateroom, as though escaping from a bed that was on fire. Yet these, perhaps, instead of being an unsuppressible symptom of some latent weakness, or frighted his resolve, were but the plainest tokens of its insanity. For at such times crazy Ahab, the scheming, unappeasedly steadfast hunter of the white whale, this Ahab, that had gone to his hammock, and not the agent that so caused him to burst from it in horror again. The latter was the eternal living principle or soul in him, and in sleep, being from the time dissociated from the characterizing mind, which at other times employed it for its outer vehicle or agent, it spontaneously sought escape from the scorching contiguity of the frantic thing, of which, for the time, it was no longer an integral. But as the mind does not exist unless leagued with the soul, therefore it must have been that, in Ahab's case, yielding up all his thoughts and fancies to his one supreme purpose, that purpose, by its own sheer inveteracy of will, forced itself against the gods and devils into a kind of self-assumed independent being of its own, nay, could grimly live and burn, while the common vitality to which it was conjoined fled horror-stricken from the unbidden and unfeathered birth. Therefore, the tormented spirit that glared out of bodily eyes when what seemed Ahab rushed from the room was for the time but a vacated thing, a formless, somnambulistic being, a ray of living light, to be sure, but without an object of color, 
and therefore a blankness in itself. God help the old man. Thy thoughts have created a creature in thee, and he whose intense thinking thus makes him a Prometheus, a vulture feeds upon that heart forever, that vulture, the very creature he creates. Thanks for listening to Moby Dick Pod. If you've liked what you've heard so far, consider subscribing or leaving us a rating on Apple Podcast. And as always, thanks for listening.